Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. At AJ Products, we're dedicated to delivering intelligent solutions tailored for your business needs. Specializing in warehouse and project planning, we bring efficiency and sustainability to the forefront. To elevate your business, visit ajproducts.ie. It's Friday, March the 1st, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics Wrap of the Week from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Jennifer Bray and Pat Leahy from the political team are here on this rather unseasonably snowy, slushy start to uh, what is supposed to be a month of spring. Hello to you both. You're shivering? Shivering, yes. So slushy and sludgy out. It was all fun and games until the rain came. How about you, Pat? It was all fun and games until my 15-year-old hit me in the ear with a snowball at about five past eight this morning. My mood Hasn't been great since. Well, we, we will do our best to elevate it with the elevated you know, nature of the discussions that we always have on this on this Friday wrap. Um, I'd expect nothing less. There's a few things which have been across our radar a lot over the last few weeks, obviously, but but I think we, we do need to touch on them today. This is probably the last podcast in which we will be considering in advance of the vote the two referendums which are due to take place in seven days' time now. Pat, I would have thought that if the weather next Friday was like the weather was today, we'd have the lowest turnout in the history of referendums. Yeah, we may we may have that anyway, Hugh. Um, I, I really don't think that these referendums have grabbed the attention of the public in any significant way. They'll be on uh, a Friday chosen, next Friday chosen because it is International uh, Women's Day. And of course, you know, entailing because many primary schools, which are also polling places, will be closed, thus entailing uh, further Disruption for many parents, um, women amongst them, I guess. So um, we have polled the questions a couple of weeks ago. It showed two things of note, I think. One, that most people didn't really know anything about them. And secondly, that, uh, that if they voted in the same sort of numbers that they would expect them to vote in a general election, that it would both propositions would pass without any difficulty. But one of the reasons that it's quite difficult to poll these sort of referendums is precisely because that, because your polling models are predicated on the sort of turnout that you get in a general election, 70% or or so. But we know that there isn't going to be a 70% turnout. So it's that question of differential turnout. Now, it must be possible, I guess, to poll that, but nobody has done it. So we're pretty much in the dark about where these referendums are going to go. My guess is that there will be a low turnout, possibly a very low turnout, and that they will be close. And it wouldn't surprise me if they're defeated. Although if you put a gun to my head on balance, I'd say they're more likely to pass. But that is a gut instinct rather than based on really any data or 
to be frank, all that much reporting. I was looking, Jen, at the press conference for Lawyers for No yesterday, which includes a number of prominent figures. Probably the most prominent, Michael McDool, has probably been the loudest voice against these these two referendums. He was predicting a 60-40 split with no winning the day. That does seem a little optimistic, but, you know, it is still a, a kind of a known unknown, the whole thing, isn't it? Very much so. Yeah, we're a week out now. And I think what we saw this week, like you said, was a couple of different campaign launches, particularly on the no side. So we had the Lawyers for No press conference, which you referenced there, and that was spearheaded by Michael McDool, who obviously has been very much on the no camp since the get-go, since since day one. He was actually one of the first people at the traps to call for uh, an emphatic uh, no, no vote in, in next week's referendum. And we've seen other groups that are specifically set up, the one in particular called Equality Not Care. Uh, they're advocating, they're basically advocating for uh, disabled rights. They're saying that the second uh, proposal, which is the Care Amendment, which is this reference to um, women's life in the home and replacing that with recognition of care within families, that that overlooks disabled people's um, rights to independent living and that it kind of reinforces the stereotype of disabled, basically, of that care burden falling within the family or that it should fall within the family. Um, so they they launched their campaign. I think their, their, their final message was that it was kind of an ableist and ageist provision and thing to ask people. So we see we see those kind of campaigns getting quite late, really, at the traps. Mm. And we also saw the independent Senator Sharon Kyogan set up a GoFundMe page uh, to what she said she wanted to do was print thousands and thousands of leaflets for a no vote. Um, I think on last count, she, she has raised around 13, 14 grand, which is n- not insignificant. I think the target was 40,000. Um, and she wants to basically... Uh, rake up a load, of, a load of posters. So you've seen these kind of she'd no She'd to do that pretty quickly at this point. Listen, she? she'd want to be putting those orders in <coughs> yesterday. She'd want to be putting those orders in last month. But um, yeah, it'd be very interesting to see now if she does like, get those posters up and how that money is dispersed. But Is so there th- much money being spent on this at all? One doesn't get that no. impression. You don't see many posters around. There's been no leaflets through my letterbox. No, and actually in comparison to, I mean, in fairness, previous referendums have been so much more divisive and often have kind of a more emotional heart to them in some ways, whereas a lot of people kind of view this as quite a symbolic referendum and that whether you vote yes or no, nothing is going to really be that different. You're not going to wake up on Sunday morning and Ireland is going to have fundamentally changed. Um, So in terms of the financing, the yes side will significantly outspend the no side. Even if you look at um, political parties like Aintu, they are advocating a no vote, but they're not actually really campaigning for a no vote. So they're not printing leaflets, they're not printing posters, they're kind of just appearing on media they're debates. saving their powder for elections later in the year, aren't and they? It's, and that is the case in a lot of political parties. Obviously, the government or the, the three government parties are driving the, the yes campaign, so they'll probably spend, they'll have a decent enough war chest um, in excess of 100,000, whereas the no campaign probably will spend less than 20,000, I would say. Um, so the spending is going to be low. Um the stakes, that's a whole other question. You have to ask yourself, does it matter if the government lose this referendum? And if you look historically, there's actually, it doesn't, it depends on the topic itself, whether it impacts the government and it depends on the stability of the government at that given time. And right now, the government is relatively stable, relies on a lot of independence um, and has that support for the moment. Um, so the stability is there. Is the question of significant import that if they lost it, it, it would do a lasting damage? Probably not. Is there not some element, though, and I'll, I'll ask you about this, Pat, and without prejudging what happens, I mean, whether whether or not these pass um, next next week, that the government hasn't made a terribly good fist of them. 
and one could be critical of a, of a number of things, even before one decides which way to vote, the way they handled it, the way they guillotined it through the Oireachtas, the way they didn't manage to paint a picture of what the legislative framework might be like after it. These are all legitimate criticisms, even from some people who might end up voting yes. Oh, yeah, I think that's fair enough. I mean, it really has the it really has the look of something, you know, that government had committed to do but really didn't want to be arsed doing. And um and 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 so, you know, that lengthy period of agreeing the wording, and then as you say, ramming it through the Oroctus, you know, very quickly without much deliberation over that wording, having, you know, picking the March the eighth date for the um uh, for for polling day, which is, you know, reeks of a kind of a gimmick, really you know when they could have they could have held the the referendums on the same day as the local and european elections and at least that way you would be guaranteed uh, a, a decent turnout but like behind all this i think Hugh, is the fact that you know and you get this sense from senior people in government one of whom i was discussing this with last night and they just don't care that much about it is the is the actual fact of the matter Yes, they are concerned uh, about the political damage that might be done if the referendums went down. To be honest, I don't think there would be any lasting damage uh, to them. But, you know, uh, as, as Jen said, not a whole heap changes the morning after this one way or the other. Therefore, I think they correctly, government correctly judges that people don't care that much about it. And therefore, you know, they're just not that invested. Uh, in it. So what's the point then, Jen? I mean, there's there's an interesting article by Dermot Ferreter in today's Irish Times, where as as always, he gives the broader historical um, vision of this going back to the foundation of the state. We've had referendums in our constitutions from the, uh, from the get-go. They were pretty infrequent for a very long time. They've become much more frequent in recent years. Partly that's to do with the necessity to have them on significant uh, changes in the European constitution, in the EU constitution. But also, there just seem to be more of them. So maybe it's got something to do with the, the increased popularity of citizens' assemblies. But if you end up with these, frankly, slightly half-assed proposals that don't necessarily have huge consequences, that feel a bit woolly, and that the government of the day doesn't seem to care very much about if Pat is if to be believed, mm. I mean, we'd be better off not having them, wouldn't we? Yeah, I mean, that's... Uh... I don't know what the right answer is there, really. I, I think Pat's completely correct. Anytime I ring anybody in government, and I've kind of been covering the referendum a fair whack, um, there's like this kind of collective groan. It's like, oh, you're ringing me about that? Right. Yeah, I mean, that you, thing which you've brought before the people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't ask me about this. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I, uh, Mary McAleese was out this morning um, on Andrew Street and I, I popped along and interviewed her afterwards. She was calling for, uh, very strongly for a yes, yes vote. And just to tie into the point you made about Jared Howland, she was making the point that we have been much quicker to change the constitution and hold referendums in the last 30 years than we were in the first 60 years. Um, and that, that reflects kind of our willingness to reinterpret the constitution and use the power that we have democratically to do that. And her point was that the the first uh, proposal in relation to um, families and, you know, extending the definition of family to extend to other durable relationships, that if people voted yes, basically, that that would mean a whole cohort of people, a whole 
groups of people who aren't currently technically recognised under the constitution would be recognised. So you're talking about lone parents and a lot of lone parents have come out in support of yes vote on that. Um, you're talking about um, unmarried couples, you know, people who don't kind of prescribe to the sort of heteronormative um, coupling uh, couplings of previous decades, but although they're not heteronormative anymore because you don't have to be heterosexual to get married anymore. Excellent point. And then on the second point, she was saying, um, and I, I hope I pronounce this word right, Hugh, because you know I always pronounce it wrong. Um, she was saying the women in the home, the clause that that is anachronistic. 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 She, she had yeah. no problem with heteronormative. I knew you'd have no problem with anachronistic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, you. Uh, your faith in me is astounding. But um, yeah, so she was kind of making the point. Power. Thanks. Thanks to both Pat and Hugh. But uh, she was kind of saying that, in her view, it is uh, a sexist provision, that it is out of step. And she said quite that part of the Constitution basically is out of date. And one of the questions that I put to her was, one of the main things that have emerged in the last week, which I think will be, a re- if the this part of the referendum, the one about the women in the home, the the care provision, if that fails, I think a big reason why it will have failed is because disabled rights campaigners have come out with very strong arguments in the last couple of days, particularly in the last week. And I asked her about that, you know, disabled rights campaigners say that this almost negates their rights to have, you know, independent support outside the home. And her point was that it doesn't take anything away from anybody. She said, yes, she understands the argument that it doesn't go far enough, but it's still moving forward. And she said, as long as basically her, her argument is, as long as you're moving forward, then you're going in the right direction. So I just think that's a tricky one because feminist groups now are splintering over it. Um, groups within the National Women's Council, um, they are coming under a lot of pressure from their disabled rights groups and advocates to infuse their feminism with disabled rights. And I think... I've, I've heard personally and even discussing it amongst female friends, um, a lot of my female friends splintering off to a yes, no vote, yes to extending the definition of family and no to the women in the home only in the last week. So it's interesting. So it is. And actually, it's one of the things that's quite confusing about all this, Pat, is that there are, I had somebody complaining to me, I described it as left and right no votes, you know, oh, yeah. and it's, let me acknowledge it is more complicated. Left and right doesn't quite fit it. But there is, there is a conservative objection to the, to the durable relationships uh, end of it and, and other objections as well to it, objections just on, on purely legal principles. But then there's also what you might broadly call a progressive political opposition to the care referendum because it doesn't go far enough in requiring the state to provide better services, which is generally a kind of That's progressive right. position, isn't it? Um, when this started off, I thought that this would be one of the weaknesses of the proposition because it could be attacked from both sides. But now we're kind of in the last leg of it. It seems to me that it has served just to kind of, just as much to kind of split the opposition and just to confuse the matter further. But, you know, are you a yes, no? Are you a no, yes? Are you a no, no? But I don't know. Time will tell, I suppose. I mean, I think you're right in your kind of characterization of those two kind of distinct elements of opposition to it. Of course, there are others, you know, but I, I think they are the... They're, they're the principal ones. Uh, I mean, what I'd be interested in and what could be decisive, I think, next weekend is the extent to which the kind of the, 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 the traditional default of lots of voters in things like this, if you don't know, vote no, which hasn't really seemed to kind of feature in much of the campaigning so far. But to what extent that turns out to be an important dynamic uh, on the day. I, I wonder if it isn't more likely to manifest itself as if you don't know, don't bother turning up on the day next week. 
And then you kind of come down to, I suppose, you know, which, you know, the, the, the enthusiasts on either side, which of them, you know, is more motivated to, uh, to get out or to what extent, you know, to what extent there are soft supporters on, on, on each side that can be persuaded to turn up. Um, I mean, I find it very, you know, very hard to get a, a sense, as I was saying earlier, very hard to get a sense of where things are now on it. I mean, it is entirely possible that as we speak, the thing is going down in flames or that it will be nodded through with a sort of a shrug by the by the middle ground. But it's it's just in the absence of any kind of up-to-date research, it's very hard to tell. At least, you know, for political nerds like us, we'll have some numbers to look at next Saturday, you know, which you know, we, all, we always like to have, you know, so that's, you know. I'm actually excited to get into the count centre. Oh, you know, you're not surprised, Hugh, but I actually no, am not. like, I've, I even quit drinking the lead up to this. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm well, not even having about. my Friday night wines. I I'm, wanna... su- I'm sure you can't say that, Pat. <laughs> Certainly not. I mean, <laughs> I mean, needless to say, I'm off it for Lent for breakfast, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Moving swiftly along, our podcast on Wednesday was looking ahead to the European elections, which are, you know, three months away, but three months is not that, that long ago. And even, you know, there are, there are wheels turning. Even since we recorded that podcast, there's been an interesting development in Fianna Fáil's strategy in uh, in the Midlands Northwest uh, constituency, where they're going to run three candidates, which I think is as much to do with preserving internal party harmony, perhaps, as it is as, as it is strategic. But there have been a couple of other issues, Jen, that have cropped up during the week that relate to the whole question of the current parties and their their positions on certain issues within the European Parliament one of the things that we were discussing on Wednesday was how you know how little those issues actually figure in the campaigns themselves and uh, but 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 they have in this case there there, there, there are two points there's a piece by Jared Highland this morning about Sinn Féin which is which is very interesting that their their sole MEP Chris McManus voted against the nature restoration law um, whereas Lynn Boylan thinks it's the best thing since sliced bread and and that kind of feeds into a narrative about Sinn Féin over the last couple of years, doesn't it? Is that it's very, uh, to be polite, strategic uh, to say it, it speaks out of both sides of its mouth on environmental issues. Yeah, and I think, um, so what happened this week, obviously, was that the EU uh, restoration law was passed in the European Parliament. Um, and there was a, there's a, a few different dynamics, which I'm sure you'd want to get into in relation to how it played out, including um, Fine Gael, um, their five MEPs voting in favour, despite their grouping, the EPP, having a very different position um, and, in fact, historically wanting to have killed the bill, more or less. Um, but Sinn Féin was really interesting because this is quite embarrassing how this played out, really. Um, Chris McManus voted against it, which seemed to be an apparent U-turn because last summer he had kind of indicated that a lot of progress had been made towards kind of addressing the concerns of farmers, basically. Um, and the day that it was announced, the afternoon that it was announced, was obviously all over Twitter, you know, it, this major plank of um, the EU's biodiversity and um, climate change plans, basically, that it had passed and that it hadn't fallen by the wayside. And Lynn Lynn Boylan tweeted, um, great news, basically, that it was great news. It was quickly pointed out to her that that's against party policy because Chris McManus voted against it and that actually the Sinn Féin policy was to vote against it. So it just showed this really interesting... What happened after that was that Sinn Féin were accused of hypocrisy. They were accused of flip-flopping. And this is not a new charge against Sinn Féin, specifically in relation to 
climate change. Uh, I know our colleague Harry McGee has written a lot about this in the past. I've done a few articles on it myself. If you track Sinn Féin's progress or their lack of progress or even making a public uh, pronouncement on what they do or don't support on climate change, it has been a history over the last four years of in and out of yes or no, maybe. And then sometimes of just not even saying, for example, when it came to outlining the different ceilings um, for um, uh, emissions reductions, they wouldn't go there in terms of the specifics. Um, And it's an interesting one because Sinn Féin in our last poll we saw that they were losing voters. They were losing voters amongst younger voters, more affluent voters, and also rural voters. And I think everything, both domestically and especially in the European Parliament now, is viewed in the prism of the forthcoming elections. Because in the European Parliament, obviously, um, legislators very keen, keenly aware of the fact that there are these massively massive farmer protests, and I think they're they're kind of scared of losing kind of the rural vote effectively. And here, Sinn Fein obviously are looking at their rural vote and going, how can we? stem this flow, I think. And I think it's having really interesting repercussions to how these parties fit into European politics. So Pat, we, we might come to the, the, the Fine Gael story in a moment, but just on, on the Sinn Féin story, it's, I mean, it's no coincidence, is it, that uh, Luke Ming Flanagan, who's the independent MEP in Midlands Northwest, he came out against this, um, whereas the Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil and obviously the, the, the Green MEPs are all in favour of it. So Sinn Féin is, um, I suppose, like most parties, it's in favour of having its cake and eating it. But is there a point at which it's it, it can be this ducking and diving doesn't doesn't cut it anymore if it's proposing itself as part, the main party of government. Yeah, it makes it more difficult for them, certainly, and, and on, on a number of levels. I mean, all big parties, and Sinn Féin is now a big party, are coalitions to a greater or lesser extent. Um, and, and that causes them troubled when you have these dividing lines between the various elements of their support. And so what we see here is, and I think there are maybe... You know, there's echoes of this and the difficulties that the party has had over immigration uh, as well. But essentially, I think you're seeing division between its progressive wing and its populist wing. And, uh, and, and, and you know, by the time it comes to an election, I guess the party will have to say, you know, on which side, on, you know, those dividing lines tend to be crystallized by things like votes. You know, you... you you want to vote, there's kind of nowhere to hide. You either vote for something or you vote against it. And um, and while, you know, up to those sort of events, the party can fudge its position a little bit, then, you know, it, that, that the opportunity for fudge comes to an end when they have to vote uh, yes or no to, to something. And, yeah, it's it's... You know, it's it's one of the things that Sinn Féin has to look to how it's going to manage it. And not just in election terms, the position that it puts in its manifestos and on which it will be interrogated over the course of an election campaign, both in general election campaign and in, uh, in a European election campaign. But, you know, say... You know, when it's, you know, if you look beyond perhaps that general election campaign, if it is in a position to try to put together a coalition of the left, you know, it's, you know, voting against the Nature Restoration Act, that sort of, you know, climate, I think it'd be a bit harsh to call it climate sceptic position, but certainly not a climate activist position. That would make things difficult if you're trying to hammer out a programme for government with the Greens, with the Social Democrats, maybe even God help us with people for profit, you know. So um, 
I think those are those are difficulties uh, ahead for Sinn Fein, certainly. Yeah, and and I think we get a we get a glimpse of that this week. We should acknowledge that you know very few parties are particularly pure on these kinds of issues. Jared Highland goes on to look at uh, in his analysis the quite clever strategising of junior minister uh, Malcolm Noonan in terms of forcing Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil into a corner they didn't necessarily want to be in and voting in favour of this legislation at the European Parliament. And it should be said as well that, you know, a lot of people when they think about the European Parliament think that there are so few Irish MEPs that it doesn't really matter which way they vote one way or another. It mattered a lot in this instance. This was a really tight vote and the five Fine Gael votes in particular made it made a difference. Naomi uh, O'Leary has a fascinating piece where she points out that, or she suggests that that Ireland is already suffering um, penalties for being a bad boy for the Fine Gael MEPs not doing what they were told by Manfred Weber, their, the leader of the European People's Party. And we've already lost jobs in Dublin as a result. Yeah, this was a really interesting piece of um, Naomi's article. And I would urge anyone who kind of wants to get a quick, a really handy grip on what's going on. Um, not only the internal sort of dynamics around how this played out, getting this uh, law passed, um, but also the other ramifications. So one of the things that she points out is that the Irish government has been very strongly lobbying and travelling all around European capitals to um, campaign for the EU anti-money laundering organisation, basically the group to be set up in Dublin. That's hundreds of jobs, you know, there's a lot attached to succeeding in this. And she was saying that the long and the short of it is, um, despite that campaign, the way it panned out basically is that we lost that bid and that these considerations within the EPP may have been central to that, that basically it may, it may have had an impact on it, which is fascinating because I've kind of followed um, Jennifer Carroll McNeil in particular. I follow her on different social media platforms and she has been all around Europe. I mean, there was one stage where I was wondering, is she ever going to come back <laughs> into domestic politics um, to campaign for this? And it looks like we weren't even included on the EPP, kind of on the, the that even in that internal shortlist um, with the other European capitals to succeed. Um, so there are other political consequences happening behind closed doors. And I think that is fascinating because I think it's somewhere like 400 jobs come with this agency. Yeah, no, it's a big it's mm. a big penalty. If, I mean, if she's right, it's a big penalty that I've suffered for, for making that I mean, decision. I, I, I don't think that Naomi was making the case that had the Fine Gael MEPs voted against the nature restoration bill that Ireland would have won the headquarters, you know, would have got the, the, headquarter, the headquarters of the, uh, of the money laundering agency. I don't think that's the point she was making, but she's definitely saying that it, it hurt. Yeah, and she that said that the tensions you know, played And this role, is yeah. classically what happens in the horse trading of Brussels politics, absolutely. And I mean, she draws a great picture of that. People should read the piece. And, and, and there's, a, there's a broader picture here, Pat, which is that, um, I mean, it's generally accepted that the, the traditional parties of the centre-right, which constitute the EPP, Christian Democratic parties across Europe, of, of which Fine Gael is traditionally one, that in response to the rise of the populist right and other things like farmers' protests, which, which, which Jen mentioned, they are moving to the right. And you can see that with the Les Republicains in France and with some of the other um, centre-right parties across Europe in the Netherlands and elsewhere. And that Fine Gael is sort of being left a bit stranded. It's a little bit too liberal. It's a little bit too centrist. It's even perhaps a little bit too lefty for the way that the EPP is going these days. Yeah, she quotes an EPP source as saying, you know, if Fine Gael was in any other country in Europe, it would be, you know, Social Democratic Party. And I mean, I'm not sure... 
about that, but I mean, I've certainly made the point repeatedly in the wake of budgets that if you look at how Fine Gael has performed in government over the last 10 years, its budgets have been heavily skewed more towards when it had money to spend, more towards funding public services than they have been on cutting taxes. And if that is, you know, one of the dividing lines between social Democrats, Christian Democrats, well, you know, Fine Gael has certainly in government, in coalition governments, admittedly, but in government has been um, has been falling on the social democratic side of the dividing line, I think. You know, in the last budget, they last two budgets, they had 11 billion to spend and in both of them, they spent 10 billion on funding, on public investment in public services and they spent 1 billion on reducing taxes. So, you know, walks like a duck, talks like a duck. It's not just an economics though, is it? I mean, that shift to the right that we're seeing from those EPP parties is also on issues like migration and culture and nationalism. They're looking not to be outflanked by Marine Le Pen and Georgia Maloney. Yes, and they're doing it because they are terrified that there's going to be a far-right sweep across Europe in the European elections in June. And not alone might the Christian Democrats lose their position as the largest party in the European Parliament, but the coalition of the EPP and the socialists and the, the kind of centrist, the centre parties that have always made, centre-right, centre-left parties that have always made Europe work, that they will lose their majority in the European Parliament. And if that happens, then that's a really serious thing for the future of the EU, frankly. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think um, even just looking back over the last couple of months, like we have seen this kind of right-wing narrative seep further and further into the EPP. And it's not the first time that Fine Gael has found itself kind of out out of step realistically with the EPP. And I I do wonder the longer that that happens, it becomes maybe more and more difficult for them um, to remain within that group. Um, now, I'm not s- suggesting there's any talk of them leaving or anything like that, but even if you look at, you know, in terms of Israel, like uh, von der Leyen, you know, they're the running for a second term, high-profile EPP candidate. Um, her stance on Israel, a lot of Irish people wouldn't have agreed with that, and the Irish government in particular. Um, and I think these that was kind of the start of what she's kind of viewed, and, and Naomi points this out in her piece, is kind of in Ireland, in more kind of toxic light. Um, and I just wonder when you when you combine that this EU restoration law, many there's loads of other laws. Um, I know that there were um, labour laws in, in in relation to products related to slavery and stuff that we, there were legislation to kind of outlaw that, and that was on one of the EPP's kill list at one stage. It, there's many examples what I'm saying of this, and I do wonder, especially when you come up to an election. I think things become so uh, things come into focus, but I think sometimes in a much more hyperinflated way than would normally be the case if we were outside an electoral cycle. So I wonder will it compound uh, their 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 issues and their problems remaining inside that group, especially when they are on, under so much pressure domestically in the lead up to potentially general election in the yeah. autumn. And then in a very different European Parliament with different political dynamics that's going to emerge after. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to be talking about the Minister of the Week, who is undoubtedly Catherine Martin. 
At AJ Products, we're dedicated to delivering intelligent solutions tailored exclusively for your business needs, spanning offices, warehouses, industries, workshops, schools, and public spaces. Specializing in warehouse and project planning, we bring efficiency and sustainability to the forefront. Our offerings include versatile storage solutions and comprehensive office project design and implementation. With over 45 years of experience, we stand as your trusted partner in smart B2B solutions. To explore all we have to offer, visit ajproducts.ie and elevate your business with AJ Products. And you're very welcome back. Catherine Martin had a turbulent enough week. Uh, Jen, you're, you're observing it. The kind of re- the report cards are coming in mm. um, on, on the Irish Times reports cards so far. I'd say Cathy Sheridan, not impressed. Justine McCarthy, she did the right thing. Uh, and there have been a few other Fintan O'Toole said that she could be, she could make a, a very strong legacy for herself if she kind of snatches victory from the jaws of defeat by actually coming up with proper proposals for Which the future. Which in his view, as far as I, if I understood his piece, was they should just get rid of the advertising entirely and be entirely state funded. Exchequer funded, yeah. Now look, I think one of the issues with exchequer funding, and I don't know, if, uh, I, sometimes this kind of falls by the wayside, I think, is that if you are putting RT within the exchequer envelope, then come budget time, they're fighting it out with everybody else. Um, and... The argument is that there are certain mechanisms in other European countries mm. where it's it's guaranteed funding over a four or five year period and that cycle is offset against the electoral cycle. So it never falls in an election year, if you know. Well, you, it, the thing about that is you never know when an election year is going to be. You never know what's going to happen within and a coalition. And the thing about that as well is that under the Irish constitutional and legal system, you can't necessarily constrain a government to stick to that either. Absolutely not. So there's so, there's loads of different things here. Mm. It's not as, it's not as um, straightforward. But yeah, I was off last week, but I was keeping an eye on the or half an ear on kind of the um, unfolding saga and the prime time uh, interview watch I watched back, which was extraordinary. And I think there was a feeling at the start of this week within government circles that okay, so she was being Catherine Martin was under pressure to go in for the doll and answer questions and answers rather than just making statements. And I was working on Sunday and was ringing around all the different parties and different groups and everybody involved. And the thinking was right, she's going to go before the media committee. She's going to talk for at least three hours. That's basically where you can get your questions in. And people seem to accept that in the opposition. So she went in uh, Tuesday night. Uh, she, you know, at the start, it was it was very clear that she went in there with a massive bus to, th- to throw uh, the former chair, Shuan Niralig, under. And she proceeded to do that with great vigour. Um, and some really interesting things came out of that. I mean, extraordinarily, because the big question is, why did she go on primetime and say that she, you know, firstly, not expect a question about having confidence in the chair. Uh, of course you're going to be asked that question. You actually don't need a media advisor to tell you that. You don't. Need, you just need to think about it. And you know, especially as a minister, you're going to be asked because it's an obvious question. And we found especially out... Especially since we understand that in mm. the pre-interview interview, she had teed up to yes. be asked these questions about so June reality. Exactly. So this is what yeah. we found out. We got the timeline. So she had found out that there was this misinformation. She was, she, Catherine Martin had been told, I misinformed you on two occasions that the board wasn't involved in a- approving Richard Collins' exit package. The board, the remuneration committee was involved. Okay, fine. So she was told that. She was very unhappy about this. She viewed it as being uh, the latest in a, rel- not a long line, but... A, a, at a, least three. At least three kind of times where she says she was misinformed and, and was apologised to. She wanted to send a letter to Shuan Niralig and say you know, convey her disappointment and arrange a meeting. And she was told, this is what came out in the committee, she was told by Shuan, 
I'm not willing to accept a letter. The long and the short of it is that she would resign if that disappointment was conveyed. Um, so she knew going into prime time that this the resignation was very likely. Then her team told the researchers there's an issue coming up and she's willing to take questions. And then what happened happened. So we get an idea now of what her motivation was. I mean, we I think we can assume that she she given what was playing out behind the scenes, she would have been aware of how this was, you know, that, that basically that a resignation was intended. So how does, let's leave RTE and its travails for another day. How does Catherine Martin come out of this looking after the last seven or eight days? I think she put in a good job at the media committee in that she answered questions fulsomely. She didn't seem to, she, she wasn't evasive. And I think sometimes when opposition politicians pick up on evasiveness, they, they smell blood and that's a dangerous place to be in if they think that there's more to come out, basically, because it's always this thing, if one more thing comes out, she's on dodgy territory. The real danger ground here now is that she has laid out a series of events that have portrayed things in a particular light. And Shuna Raddick, I think, has been invited, and if she hasn't, she will be invited to appear before the committee. If she, if she appears and gives a different version of events or portrays things in a light that's very different to how Catherine Martin has portrayed it, that is a very dangerous territory, I think, because it blows this up and you will get to a stage of this controversy where you look back and go, wait a minute, how did all this start? As the person resigns and if they resign. But I just think there is, she's not in the clear yet is what I'm saying. Pat, less than two weeks ago, you wrote a column in which you said to people that people who are called before these Oireachtas committees, if they don't have to be there, in other words, if they're not in a job anymore, would be, uh, and I may be paraphrasing here, utterly bonkers to accept that invitation. Do you think Shuni Rahali should accept this one? Actually, the point I was making uh, in the column is that, yes, people would be mad to go in uh, at the moment because the TDs and senators so frequently make an absolute mess of the questioning. Um, I said, but people should attend Oireachtas committees if they can assist their investigations, as long as they can be assured that they'll be treated with a degree of, of respect and decorum when they're, when they're in there. And actually, by and large, I thought the performance of the committee the other night was much better than it had been in some of its previous meetings. I mean, there was a few, uh, you know, th- there was a few pointless question uh, questions, uh, all right, or a few passages of pointless questioning. But by and large, I thought the committee members were were pretty pretty good, vastly improved. I thought on the uh, on the whole uh, in their questioning. So I suppose it, 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 it does depend on whether Shuni Rahali wants to tell her side of the story. My guess is that she, she will. I think it would be difficult also for Catherine Licken, the former Secretary General of the Department, who also has information germane to the issues under investigation by the committee, should, um, I think, be very difficult for her as a former Secretary General to, to refuse to go into the committee. So, I, you know, I, I definitely think there'll be another round, at least one other round of this that we can uh, we can all look forward to. I, I mean, I agree with Jen. I think that Catherine Martin is not out of the woods yet, but she's kind of placed herself in the woods in a way by getting rid of, uh, by getting rid of, of, of Shuni Rahlig. And I, I did think she did okay at the committee in that her account was consistent. I'm just not sure parts of it were believable. I mean, the idea that she didn't know, and look, I'm not sure a whole heap hangs on it, or whatever, but the idea that she didn't expect a question about whether she had confidence in the chair, I, I just, it's completely unbelievable to say that she didn't expect that, uh, that, that, that question. And so I think that, you know, when a, uh, 
You know, when something is, is unbelievable, that's normally because it's not true. And I think if any of her, any of the accounts that she gave or any elements of the account that she gave is demonstrated to be untrue, then she is in trouble for sure. I'm sure that's true. But Jen, ultimately, we're, we're kind of getting into angels dancing on the head of a pin stuff here, aren't we? These sort of questions are not earth shattering. And I suspect for the broad vast majority of people. These are spats between uh, public servants of one sort or another who they're not very well acquainted with over very minor points, really. I mean, people have, to use the dreaded phrase, they've moved on, haven't they? I think. I very much think so. And I think our snapshot polling proves that to a certain degree. Um, Like if you go out and set yourself in a pub this evening, I really don't know if you'd hear people talking about what was Catherine Licken told last October by Sheeran Neuralig on a phone call about the board, about Richard Collins following on from. Do you know what I mean? So I'm, I'm just not sure it's capturing the public imagination. I think the thing that's really coming out of it, if there's like an overarching vision, it's kind of Catherine Martin's tenure. You're looking into the air looking for the vision. <laughs> there is none. Um, it's about her her status as a minister, how she handles things as a minister, her competency, I guess, is what's up for debate now at the moment. We've we've lost all sight of what is actually happening. Like, we've gone so far in this RTE saga that it's, I don't know, it's like waking up the morning after, like, a mental night and being like, what happened? Luckily, um, (laughs) luckily two of our top writers have collaborated on a major piece about Catherine Martin and the current controversy for tomorrow's paper. That's true. Together at last, Pat, you and me. Um, <laughs> we, we have indeed, and you can look forward to that in tomorrow's Super Soraway Saturday uh, Irish <laughs> Times. Um, speaking of the Super Soraway uh, Irish Times, uh, this time of the week we all pick articles which took our fancy. You mentioned the snapshot poll there, our monthly poll of public sentiment, mm. uh, Jen, and you were taken by a piece Cathy Sheridan wrote about, that that very fact, the kind of the murmuration of starlings around news events, which it reveals. That's such a great way of phrasing it, actually. I'm jealous that I didn't say it myself. But, um, so, yeah. Lyrical, Hugh. Lyrical, yes. He's going to break into song next, Pat. Um, and we're all here for it. But yeah, so Cathy Sheridan had a piece in Wednesday's paper and the title of it was, it's worth taking a longer term perspective on the snapshot polls, the series of articles that we do, which in essence captures what's at the forefront of the, the public mind. And I'm obsessed with this project because I'm a bit of a nerd and I love it. And I think uh, it's fascinating to watch the bar chart move on what's capturing the imagination. And she was kind of pointing out how quickly um, things, you know, are at the top of all of our agendas and then how they flare completely out and they just burn into an, em- you know, into an ember. She gave um, one example. So she said, the snapshots, for example, tell us the crime Gardaí went from zero to a December spike of 16%, understandable, with the Dublin riots. The only issue to tie for first place was housing, and then it plummeted to 3%. The cost of living, another big talking point, hit a high of 17% last September and is now only at 3%. And the same can be said, uh, Palestine, Israel, um, Ukraine, didn't even feature at all at one point, she said. Um, and she talked about climate change. And I think it is really, it reinforces this thing that we always say, which is becoming almost like, we've said it so many times, it's starting to lose all its meaning, but that the election campaign itself is so dynamic and that so much depends on what news naturally unfolds throughout an election campaign. And I think the snapshot polls really prove that and that's what she was writing about, basically. Are we, to some extent, I would say we, we in the media, uh, Pat, are we to blame for this, that we create these huge big fusses about things and they're the most important things ever and they dominate the the, the nine o'clock news and the fronts of newspapers and then they just 
melt away so quickly? Because really, what people are being asked is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, is not what's most important to them necessarily, but what they've noticed. Is that right? Yeah, what they've noticed that the government has done that makes them think the country is going in the right or wrong direction. And uh, yeah, look, I think it's a useful addition to our uh, kind of armory of research tools um, that we use to, you know, try and figure out where public sentiment is and I guess uh, where where it might go. I think one of the most important jobs for us to answer your question, Hugh, as journalists is to put context on things. And, you know, it's an old journalistic saw, I guess, you know, that if everything is a crisis, then nothing is a crisis. Mm. And sometimes we, and maybe some of our, uh, maybe also some other media outlets, but I suppose we're not entirely, you know, immune to this ourselves, is, you know, declaring things to be a crisis that actually are not a crisis. They're, they're just a story of the week. I mean, I think this RTE story, I mean, it is a crisis for RTE. It's a crisis for public service broadcasting. It's a crisis in some respects for the future of how the public is informed in the country. And that's important. I think where we have perhaps become just too bogged down in is in the minute detail of who knew what when and maybe we've overinflated the significance of those small details. Whereas it seems to me, and I've made this point here before, that it seems to me the more important question for RTE is not what happened last year and since then. It's what happens uh, in in the future. And I, I think we should probably bear in mind to give that, the future, due importance when we know a little bit more about the answers to those questions rather than dwelling on the past so much. I agree. I agree. Um, I picked an article by Finn McRedmond. I mean, Pat picked one by Finn last week and it was about wine. Mm. Uh, I picked one uh, this week and it's about beer, so we may detect a a recurring theme here. She's writing about something which I wasn't aware of at all, which is that Guinness has become much more fashionable in the United Kingdom. In England, I think one in 10 pints of beer sold in pubs is now a Guinness, which is a lot. In London, it's one in six, which is just remarkably high. Um, It's become fashionable in a way it wasn't previously. My whole sense when you put the words Guinness and London together usually formed part of a sentence, which was something along the lines of you can't get a decent pint of Guinness in London. But apparently now you can, according to Finn. And that's all grand. I suppose I'm slightly depressed by the suggestion in the piece that yet again the whole sum total of Irish identity in all its magnificent complexity is reduced down to just you know sculling pints of the black stuff you know but that's that I mean that's not true you know know? sticking pints in Barack Obama's hands all that embarrassing (laughs) catacodology why why not stick a pint in Barack Obama's hand Um, from what I can recall Barack Obama was quite taken with the pint and he had the look of a man who'd like another one as soon as he finished it. But, but anyway. it's, it's not true. Like, if, even if, like, you, you know you know better than anybody about this. The Irish culture is having such a moment, you know, like, you know, we're known for so much more than, and historically and especially now, than just our pint Guinness. And actually on that, I don't know whether you ever saw these Twitter accounts before, which had took pictures of the worst pints of Guinness that oh, were... Oh, they're, 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 they're stomach turning. You'd literally look at Shit them. Shit London Guinness. Yeah. And there's another piece actually in the paper this week, the I Am Not An Alcoholic column about the Irish writer who's over in Paris and they're watching the Parisians drink a cup of coffee with sips of absinthe in between and wondering, you know, so it's not just Ireland who loves to drink. And half nine in the morning. At half nine in the morning. I was mm. just in Paris a week 
week and a half ago and I watched out the cafe window at 12 o'clock at noon. A guy sat down, ordered a three course lunch and a bottle of red wine. He was by himself and he just enjoyed that bottle of red wine and then he had an absinthe and then he stood up and walked to get another coffee in a perfectly straight line and said thank you very much and seemed so together. That's what Pat did just before we started recording. (laughs) I thought he said, yeah, particularly (laughs) equations. Pat, what was your article? <laughs> so uh, the piece I, I picked from this week was a piece from yesterday's paper by Derek Scally, our Berlin correspondent, and um, he, he's talking about how the uh, the new approach uh, in Germany to a more not a more militarist uh, outlook for for the country, but but certainly one that is much more. Uh, inclined as a result of the uh, uh, of the war in in Ukraine to invest in its defence, and this is uh, you know there's, there's there's two important German words which I'll now try and pronounce for you. One is the Kriegstuchtig, which is uh, means kind of war ready, and he cites a speech um, given by the defence minister during the week when he he's talking about this Kriegstuchtig or whatever it is, um, which means essentially being ready for war. And the idea is that you avoid war by being ready for war. And this is the outworking of, I suppose, the the, the phrase coined by Olaf Scholz last year, the Zeitenwende, which is, you know, the, the, the big change, era shift, turn of the times, whatever you, uh, whatever you call it. I'm, perfectly, I'm, I'm the, very impressed by the pronunciation, but do you have to shout all the German words, Pat? Is that required? Yeah. Well, well, my early training in the language of Faust, uh, the, the language of Goethe, uh, suggested to me that Germans tended to shout a lot. Um, I, I spent a number of very happy summers there, and um, which I seem to recall that it was me and some of the other Irish lads that were doing most of the shouting. That sounds right. But, and, but, um, uh, but anyway, I mean, it's very interesting, you know, because Germany as the essential nation in Europe, the anchor economically, politically of Europe has, you know, if it goes on to lead what many European politicians here, and you hear this all the time in Brussels now, this requirement for the EU to be able to defend itself against an expansionist Russia, perhaps without the United States. I mean, that truly is a generational shift. And what Derek's piece explains, I think, is how that is actually working in Germany politically, both not just logistically in terms of the production of armaments, but the um, but but politically in terms of a shift in what was once an overwhelmingly pacifist approach to such matters and to to foreign policy. Germany, it seems, has as as a result of the the war in Ukraine is is getting over the pacifism of, what, four or five decades and uh, more. And uh, I think that is a very important shift for Europe more broadly. Indeed, although the idea of Germany on the march will send shivers down the spines of, of some of our some of our listeners, uh, at least, I think. But it is, as always, a very interesting piece by Derek on all kinds of tectonic plates shifting in European and German politics at the moment. We will- yeah, but I mean, I, I mean that is true, but just to add one final point on it, Hugh, I mean, I think the people that, you know, the, the places that are calling for Germany, you know, to, to lead G- Europe militarily, you know, in in this regard, are places like Poland, you know, that have had a, you know, a less than 
happy relationship with German militarism in the past, you know? Sure, um, sure, absolutely. So, and I think, I guess, you know, the country now being, you know, anchored so firmly in the European Union, I mean, it's a big digression, but, you know, if you, I think this was a great misunderstanding of, of, of Brexit, that, you know, that Germany would prefer to sell cars to uh, the UK than to look after the the EU or maintain the EU as it was. But, you know, the entire thrust of three generations of post-war German politicians was to avoid any repeat of the late unpleasantness. And the vehicle for that was the European Union. I think that is still the essence of German German politics, but I just think that its stance vis-a-vis defence and... and uh, has changed, and that is because it has, you know, that's the response to outside events and the realization that the European Union uh, may need to defend itself uh, in, in the future. And as, as I say, I think that's a massive, massive change. Uh, that was a digression worthy of Otto von Bismarck himself. We, we will, though, we will, though, <laughs> leave it there. Thanks, thanks so much to Pat and to Jen. Thanks to our producer John Casey and to our engineer JJ Verna. We'll be back after the weekend. We'll see you then. Until then, have a great time. Thanks for listening. Auf Wiedersehen.